history of personal computing. Hello, Vintage Computer Nuts, and welcome back to the History of Personal Computing eBay Edition podcast. Instead of being like tour guides at a museum, Jeff and I are just two collectors, and we're looking at things from that vantage point. It's been two weeks, and we're back together to take an informal look at personal computing history through the lens of eBay auctions. But hey, we have a special guest today. It's Adam Rosen from the Vintage Mac Museum, based in Boston, Massachusetts. Hiya, Adam. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure, guys. Happy to be on the show. And what brings what, why are, what brings you on the show, Jeff? Did you book Adam for some reason? No, I was. We were supposed to have uh, Stephen Wright from, from Boston. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I, I kidnapped him this morning and took his place. We said very little about it. So, um, well, uh, the, of course, the reason we have Adam on the show is because uh, he uh, we invited him first off. But we have entered into the realm of the 32-bit computers with, with GUIs. So last time we did the Apple Lisa, and this time we're doing the Macintosh. So, uh, so Adam, you run a vintage Mac museum, and you're, you're all things Mac. Tell us a little bit more about yourself. You also are a uh, Macintosh consultant, technical consultant. Yeah, I've heard about the Mac. It's a vague, you know, mm-hmm. something that's crossed my path in a distant, you know, distant way. No, I've actually been a Mac user for pretty much the entire time the platform has been around. Um, as you say, I'm now a professional Macintosh consultant, and I do support for a wide range of uh, Apple products and ages, but safe to say pretty much within the last 10 years stuff newer than what this podcast would typically talk about um but i also have started as most mac collectors do um a couple of machines became a small collection and then word gets out that you know someone will take the stuff off your hands right and you know the collection sort of grows either linearly or exponentially over (laughs) over the years Mm -hmm. uh but i have quite a collection some of you may have you know heard about it online seen the website uh, VintageMacMuseum.com. Um, I've been on a couple other podcasts and such. So I still do work with equipment of all ages and actually use a lot of the old stuff, uh, you know, for some file transfer work and things like that. So trying to keep Macs alive for more than just the occasional game. And so, of course, I've been to your site, VintageMacMuseum.com. So, so obviously, the Vintage Mac Museum is a site, but also it's a it's a physical thing that's at your offices. At your office. It's a I real guess. museum, yeah, in my house. Oh, okay. Uh, which is also my office. I have a okay. home office. And now the, uh, the home office is one room. It's half old Max. So technically not two public. Two other bedrooms. It's not public. It's available if people are really you know interested. And I get uh, contacted from maybe you know a couple of people a year who are in the area <laughs> and want to see it. And I'll you know make – more would come to see it if it was a public space. Yeah. Um, that's, okay. That's a soft goal. Is to have a place to you know to exhibit it at least occasionally, permanent, not like a festival kind of touring thing. Um, and I'm hoping in the next few years, with the help of some other folks up here, maybe to do that. But it's a real; it's not just a website of interesting products. You know, it, it's my collection and it's info about the collection and a lot of other information just about the Mac over the years. I might have to uh, 
contact you sometime in April. I plan on being in Salem at SalemCon. Um, that oh. uh, was the, f- the first full weekend of April, or the 8th, 9th, 10th, or 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, or something like that. But um, that's what I'm going there for, uh, my wife and I. Um, but she's a Macintosh fan. I might have to convince her to... Uh, uh, I mean, granted, Wait, your schedule Are you suggesting your schedule, you're not... I'm sorry. You're suggesting you're not one. No, <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a few Macs. Um, right, those Salem's ones. Salem's not that far away from here, so yeah. If no, you want, I'd be happy see, to I show have you a friend stuff. who who uh, owns a guitar shop in Rhode Island, an old Army buddy, and I plan on uh, hanging around Sunday to see him if he's not busy or something. But I didn't realize you were in Boston. I, last time I was up there um, was last summer. Uh, had I known, I was looking for things to do up in the Boston area. Right. Well, it's not a commercial space. Like you, you yeah. can look it up on a, the museum tour. But oh, but the look at the stuff is you know, folks nice. who know it. Right. That's basically who comes to see it is other people interested in vintage computing who I've gotten to know over time, and they say, "Hey, you know, I'm going to be in town. Mind if I take a look?" I always tell people just drop in on Adam's house, and he'll entertain That's you right. over the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, put, um, we'll put the yeah, GPS coordinates on. Our yeah. Website. And Adam, what's your address again? <laughs> VintageMacMuseum.com. Yeah, and also, and and Adam, you've um you've been known to be a writer, so you've done a lot of writing on Cult of Mac. I guess not not recently, but you you were on there for quite a while. Right, I wrote for them for a, a couple of bursts, a few years, and then off a year or so, and then a couple more years, and then off a year or so. Sort of spurred with changes in editors <laughs> at the site at the time. Um, but I've done some writing for them. I wrote before that. I did a bit of writing for Low End Mac. Um, and I still do some stuff on the Vintage Mac Museum. But I'd like to do Your more. Blog, it really yeah. comes down to time. Right now, you know, earning the living on the modern Macs is, is what takes up most of the time. I understand. I see your cat Oreo here. It looks kind of like our Yoda. We have a cat very similar color. <laughs> Tuxedo cat? Yes. All right. So let's everyone look at this site. Not this moment, but so vintagemacmuseum.com. Again, we're going to move along and go into the show. So uh, this is a more recent addition to the show where we try to mention a little bit of what we've been up to or any exciting news or whatever. So, Jeff, you have something. Yes. Um, I don't have any. Oh, a follow up from last time. New news. Yeah. But last time I was talking about how I um, was waiting on four parts uh, for uh, TTL chips for an OSI 300 microprocessor replica and i received those actually two days after we recorded the last pod or no that would have been sunday three days after recorded the last podcast and i was able to plop them in there and it worked my soldering skills are still good um but one thing i didn't realize when i um bought the parts for it is the leds i bought i didn't use conventional red leds to match you know an original style. I got white and blue and green, and they are extremely bright. I plugged uh, this thing, and a few of the lights were on already, and it's like I was blinded for. So those were brand minutes. new parts. Yeah, these are all brand. Well, yes, the LEDs and stuff, all the discrete components, the LEDs, the resistors, diodes, and stuff like that. Uh, those were all brand new parts. The only things I I had for my personal supply of electronic parts were the CPU, the memory, uh, one of the TTL logic chips, and I needed those four. That you know apparently aren't common enough, but they were needed for this, and it, it works. Um, but it's really cumbersome to program. I, I, you have to 
Let's see. You have to go into a special flip switches into a special mode. Then you set your address. Then you set your data. Then you flick the load switch back and forth. That loads it into that byte of RAM. Then you go to the next address, set your next data, and of course you'll have to hand compile your sixty five oh two application. It sounds it, like fun. It works. It, it's yeah, yeah. It's a proof of concept thing, and you know, as I said the last show, I got it really cheap. So it's just a fun thing to have. Um, it works. Right. The, the amount of your the equivalent cost of your labor to get it working though is the real exactly. price of it. Yeah. And if I want bright blue and white lights that you know blink in ra- at random, well, first I'd have to design the program to do that. I just couldn't get a program to start on this thing because the instructions that the designer for this replica puts out, he says, go see this original OSI 300 webpage to learn how to program it. Uh-huh. And there's a link to an original manual. And it tells you very little about where it's going to start running from. I didn't know that you had to put the low byte and high byte of the starting address into, I think, the 7C and 7D memory locations. Um, and that's where the 6502 will pick up from to determine where it's going to start running the application when you flip the switch to run. But I think there was something with that original OSI board compared to the newer design, and that's not matching up because I put those values in and it won't run the program that it's supposed to run. So it's, uh, I mean, there's not, there's no, uh, there's no uh, ROM in here, so it's not like a BIOS or anything like that that's going bad. This is, you know, I have to write the code and I have to point to the starting address, which is 0000, but it doesn't pick that up on its own. A few things I need to work out, but this would be the first, um, I guess, bit programming that I've ever done. I never owned an Altair or an MSI or anything like that. Well, it's good that you're actually doing that stuff because, you know, it's kind of a novelty thing. But and that's what it is. It's a novelty. But most people probably just build it and look at it. That'd be me. I love the smell of <laughs> solder smoke in the morning. So, you know, there's plenty of that. So I'm going to move into my item here. But actually, I have one thing to mention. I, I, so I intended to mention it, but then I, f- I forgot about it till just now. So I didn't put it in the notes. But um, someone, Adam, you know, um, Retro Connector has a miniature Apple IIGS signed by Steve Woz, and it's an auction for charity, which benefits the UNC Cancer Hospitals. Is uh, So we uh, we tweeted it out of the account, so you can go there and find it. But it's, So it's an active, it's one of those little miniature reproduction Apple IIGSs. Yep. And, and, um, and you have a little miniature uh, Mac, Adam, that I saw. I have, that- well, I have the Mac, which, which it doesn't function. It's, it, the Mac is basically a dock for yeah. uh, an iPod Nano. Which is cool. It's, which is cool. It's not a running computer, but actually, based on your recommendation, David, I also have a Pixel, ah. which is a Lisa replica with the Raspberry Pi inside, and I have that running Mini V Mac as well as, in a limited and awkward sense, Lisa M. Yeah, which is what I really wanted it to do. Um, but yeah, he's did doing some great work, uh, Charles Mangan down at Charles. Uh, Retro Connector. Yeah, so I didn't have notes in front of me, so he has I went tons to the of stuff. I almost want to buy everything he has. But I specifically want also I want to point out this because it's for charity and you know and Waz signed it so just want to mention that. But I have another item to talk about and it's about a computer history exhibit in New York City and there's going to be a link in the show notes and there's lots of nice pictures there. But um, just to read the first part of it. Uh, from the article, it says, we venture to guess that most people won't jump to name New York as a central hub of the technological era. But as the New York Historical Society exhibition, Silicon Valley, Silicon City rather, demonstrates the forebears of the modern computer were working on the East Coast rather than the West. 
Through 300 artifacts and archival materials, Exhibit retells the lesser-known narrative of the digital revolution celebrating New York's role in transforming the innovations that define our lives. And then what I thought was interesting, I'm not going to read the whole thing here, but it talks about it all begins with the 1964 New York World's Fair, and, and it goes from there. And it, and IBM had a pavilion and so on. So a very interesting article, a lot of nice uh, pictures to look at of what's there. If you're, in, if you're in New York City between now and it runs through middle of April, then, you know, something very, very nice to go see. Because this is a lot of stuff. You look at the pictures. These are more uh, exhibits of not personal computing so much as uh, other computing artifacts, mainframe, you know. No, big, this is New York City, stuff. right? Yeah, in New York City. Okay. So, um, so pretty cool. That that the New York historical people. I didn't know <laughs> IBM was at the World sixty four World's Fair. Yeah, and, uh, and oddly enough, I there. have video footage of the sixty four World's Fair. I picked it up. I do too. From a flea market. Um, somebody had sixteen millimeter home movies. Well, oh, someone's own Fair. video. That's yeah. neat. But it's brittle. I have to be very careful with it. Try to get it digitized if you can. I'm, I'm, yeah, I want to. I just stored it away in a temperature controlled area, you know, with the rest of my collection. Well, I don't uh, know if I've ever just along this lines real quick for hand it off to Adam, but um, I don't know if I spoke about this, but I'm a, well, you know, I wrote an article comparing Steve Jobs to Walt Disney, the man, and a lot of comparisons and contrasts. So I'm a big fan of Walt Disney and the 1964-65, it actually went for two years. Uh, New York World's Fair was very, uh, a big deal when it came to Walt Disney as well. Uh, he helped create four big pavilions there. And then a lot of the things we know of in the Disney parks originated there, like audio animatronics and um, what's called the Wedway People Mover, which is the basis of uh, uh, oh, memory's not as good as it used to be. I can't think of what ride it was. But uh, if you're familiar with the Haunted Mansion, um, you know, the Doom Buggies, the ride vehicle you're in, that, that started yeah, there. That's the not the Wedway People Mover. mover is in Tomorrowland, though. right? It goes around Tomorrowland? Yes, yeah. And and I'm not sh- and the Doom Buggy I don't remember what it was called the Doom Buggy's the Haunted Mansion version of it but anyway so that's kind of neat stuff too the the whole World's Fair thing's pretty neat so check that out and now I'm going to hand it off to Adam and Adam you're going to tell us a little bit about some recent news about floppies Star about Trek. floppies and uh, the Great Bird of the Galaxy if you guys know that term uh, that was a phrase used to describe Gene Roddenberry who's the creator of Star Trek. And this story actually was interesting to me because I was both a huge Trekkie growing up and now I do some data recovery work. Uh, apparently, Roddenberry's estate found a whole batch of uh, five and a quarter inch floppy disks, which I know you guys remember. Actually, most of the show listeners probably will. Uh, these were – well, I haven't said exactly what they were yet. They're like documents, perhaps scripts or his own writings. But on a really weird system, it was some kind of CPM variant, but uh, he, he had customized it um, or he bought something customized. I mean, these were the days when, you know, standards were something we looked forward to as opposed to actually, you know, worked, worked with. Um, so he sent them to um, Drive Savers out in California that's been around a long time. They typically do, you know, hard drive recovery when you're, you know, your drive burns in a fire or gets dumped in the ocean or something like that. They're the folks to call. And they worked with these disks. They had to write custom software to read them, you know, and figure out what the images are and get it back to, you know, readable text. But I, I, after several months, I guess they were successful. Um, nobody knows the, the family hasn't released the contents yet. So we don't know if there's more movies or unfinished Star Trek scripts or things like that. 
Um, but it was, you know, some digital sleuthing here, which is part of, you know, it's interesting. We're going to know more about civilization from the Egyptians because they chiseled their records in stone. Then we're going to know about our era because it's on, you know, digital magnetic media that becomes yeah. obsolete next week. That was in the news recently. I, I heard some of that being discussed. So anyway, it's sort of interesting, um, you know, that they did this. It's, it's rare that a data recovery you know, job makes national news, but if it's uh, Gene Roddenberry, you know, founder of Star Trek stuff that you found, mm-hmm. everyone's so. Well, now we have to, nobody knows what it is yet, but it's um, almost like what they did with um, who is it? That artist, I can't remember his name. They found a lot of his uh, work from the Commodore Amiga stuff. Um, oh, oh, oh! He, he did the uh, tomato cans. Yep, uh, I, I know. know Andy, him Warhol. Because, yeah. Andy Warhol. Andy Warhol. Yeah. Yep. Um, they they found a lot of discs for the stuff that he did, but this this with Gene Roddenberry is much bigger because well first of all five and a quarter inch discs are older and they'd be tougher to work with and you know this is Gene Roddenberry and um, yeah about Andy Warhol of course you know Steve Jobs also demonstrated the Mac to him right and won some sitting or whatever one thing I find interesting about this particular coverage of it from boing boing is and i'm gonna look further into as it mentions that and they they italicize it the reason it took so long is awe-inspiring he made his own computers only switching to commercial products near the end of his life uh you know people that built their own clones and stuff is that making your own computer i just i don't know i just kind of question that but looking at the computer this one picture and what i see about it and what was described about the it running cpm as well as dos you know, after the IBM came out in 81, the PC that is, uh, for the next few years, you had these these IBM near clones, and they were called like workalikes, and they, and they could mostly run a lot of DOS software, and they could run CPM 86, right. but then they weren't true IBM compatible. And I got to think that's probably what this is. And made his own computer could also describe built it as a kit. Yeah, it was custom. That's true. Something like maybe, that. Maybe a Heath kit that was redesigned. Yeah. Because Heath kits would run um, CPM. Mm-hmm. But, you know, floppies, from my own personal experience, they if you just take care of them and keep them out of moisture and, you know, extreme heats and light and all that kind of stuff, they they all last pretty well. <laughs> I mean, I still... I've had some pretty good success with mine. Yeah, I mean, I've certainly had some failed floppies over the years, but I, I still have some floppies that are like, you know, when I first started collecting, and I acquired them from somebody else, and they still work. The odds are pretty good. It's ironic, but it's like anything else. They don't make them like they used to, you know. So you have the the discs are better made, just in terms of physically better made. Plus, there's so much. There's less information on them, which means physically, mm. there's more area per bit. Yeah, it's easier to read and recover, even if the original drives can't. You know, specialized software. So you know, those older formats often have longer reliability because they were simpler. You know, and sort of built more tank-like. And I think, and, the, and this is making a real gener- big general assumption, but also, I don't think you just said this, Adam, but I think, yeah, also people didn't reuse them as much. So pretty much you wrote stuff to them and then now that, okay, that one's done, right? And you just didn't, they just weren't used as much or as often. Um, necessarily. Well, I think not in always, the early history of floppies that everything was so expensive, you reused as much maybe as you so, could. Maybe so, yeah. But by Later this time. On, it became, you know just disposable. Yeah, by the late 70s and early 80s, they were they were cheap. They were getting down to, you know, $10, $15 a 10-pack. Unless you went to Radio Shack and <laughs> double it. <laughs> All right. So, 
We're going to move along. And uh, so the, the mention again on today's show, we're continuing our coverage of the 32-bit GUI computers. And so we're talking about the Apple Macintosh. I uh, And just grabbing a few notes out of Wikipedia, I felt this is kind of interesting. It'd be good discussion. So um, just to mention from last show, this is the Wikipedia uh, a bit of the Wikipedia description for the Apple Lisa. So, to quote, contrary to common belief, it was not the first personal computer to offer a graphical user interface in a machine aimed at individual business users. Development of the Lisa began in 1978. The Lisa sold poorly, with only 100,000 units sold. So you'll see why I, I felt I want to quote that. So this is from Wikipedia for the Macintosh. The Macintosh, branded as Mac since 1997, is a series of personal computers designed, developed, and marketed by Apple Incorporated. Steve Jobs introduced the original Macintosh computer on January 24th, 1984. This was the first mass market personal computer featuring an integral graphical user interface and mouse. What do you think about that statement, Adam? Uh, Well, the key, the way they phrase it, first mass market personal computer. You know, bo- both are true. The, the Lisa wasn't the first graphical user interface system sold as a retail product. Yeah, Xerox actually tried that. I guess it was the Altair or the Star. One of the two was right, right. The two up. Um, well, the big uh, thing that strikes me is, is you know, yeah, the Lisa sold poorly, one hundred thousand units, but that's a hundred thousand of them they sold. So how is anybody saying that the Mac was the first mass market personal computer? Feci- you know, what I mean, it wasn't. The Lisa was. I would. I, Again, you're reading from Wikipedia, so the source of all knowledge. Yes, but you know, (laughs) mass market personal computer. I think, in one sense, fits in with the phrase "the computer for the rest of us." Mm -hmm. And there would Apple had two meanings that at the time. You know, one was um, it wasn't DOS. You know, wasn't the IBM PC. The other, in some sense, you know, because Jobs also you know hated the Lisa team because he was kicked off of it by the end, was this was the computer he wanted to make and it was cheaper and okay, you snobs keep that and this is for the rest of us. I'm inclined to believe that story. I mean, nothing, all respect to um, to Jobs for his visions and stuff like and the things he was able to do. He probably would have been, and maybe I got this wrong, he would have probably just wiped the Lisa off history, you know, any any written history about it. Oh, well, he kind of tried to. He pretty much sort of did in a way. But that's his style, and that's probably where then um, the argument comes in, which one was actually the first. You know, Jobs well, probably right one way where everybody else who actually saw it or can can read anything about it would technically so, order in a different way. So I think technically that last statement, which was really – I probably should have cut some other stuff out. So my main point was that last statement saying this was the first mark. So I think technically that's not correct. I guess in the context of the full article about the Mac, that obviously the Mac ultimately – and it took it a while because it did not sell that great during its first year. Um, it really wasn't until the 512 then ultimately the, the Mac Plus. It really started taking off with sales. So obviously the Mac way outsold the Apple Lisa. So depending on how you want to define mass market – successfulness right. and all that well, stuff. Well, I would what I would take effect is the Wikipedia's entry of the Lisa. The Lisa wasn't a personal computer. Mm. It was a computer individuals could buy. It was more of a workstation. Yeah. And it was sold to businesses and colleges basically. Yeah. And um you know, it wasn't designed to at $10,000, you know, in 1983, it wasn't designed to be a mass market system. Um you so take that it back. was <laughs> But it was, you know, it was it, the way I describe to people, it was you know the first successful product that was sold, you know, because I don't really consider the Xerox systems to be successful commercial products. No, 
Now they weren't seminal, but not successful. Because they weren't. They weren't even marketed. You know, commercially. Is that fair? I think so. I, they limited mainstream. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, that was part of the reason why half the Lisa te- half the Xerox team went to Apple. You know, to do the Lisa and then ultimately the Macintosh because they wanted to see something happen with their work. So that was a good discussion. See. I thought that was yeah, interesting. That was the philosophical section of today's podcast. <laughs> well, we're going to be talking a lot more about Macs because that's all we're talking about in this show. And we're going to be looking at at least nine of them or, or a couple more here and there. So anyway, Jeff, we had some feedback. Yes, we that did. we want to talk um, about. Well, we had two listeners that reported the uh, podcast article, the last episode, which is what, four? Um, the inline player on the web page was playing – Episode four. It was yeah. It was supposed to be episode five. It was playing episode four. Oh, okay. And not the Apple Lisa version, which was episode um, five the, last show. Yeah, um, the RSS feed was correct for those who subscribed to our podcast through RSS, but it was an oversight on on my part that the inline link to the um, the web page player was still showing the old ones. That's copy and paste, and me not checking everything. Can we fire so, you? Uh, can we what? You can dock my pay two weeks. Um, And two people actually reported that on the same day Uh, Joaquin Cruz and Norbert Landsteiner. uh, Thank you for both of them for pointing that out. If if you find a mistake on our stuff, let us know because we like to fix it right away. You mean both Uh, of our listeners reported the problem? (laughs) (laughs) No, one listener and his friend. So, yeah, we had one listener and now we have two. Okay. So. Well, you guys have one more than Car Talk then. <laughs> well, two people per listener. See, this is better than you can get in, you know, from teachers and student ratios. You get when well, we got three podcasters to Adam. Listeners. Suddenly, you sound like one of those guys from Car Talk. <laughs> well, I live in the same city. Yeah. yeah. And uh, on a similar note, on that same page for our episode five, I was checking the links, and I noticed the one link that was, I think. You provided that, David, so now I can dock your pay two weeks. Uh-oh. Um, the link to the OSI 300 board wasn't working. But what I think what the problem was is whatever it linked to, that uh-huh. website had a problem. Because an image came up. It was like a, an icon of some sort, uh, a graphic icon. And all the pages on that website were displaying that. So they must yeah. be running some sort of uh, server-type uh, software to manage their site. So what I did is just... For the sake of the link, is I found a picture of what the replica board looks like and put that in. Right, of course, it had to be somebody else's fault. Exactly. <laughs> All right, good stuff. So let's move right into our auctions. And so Jeff, you're going to lead us off. Okay. What are your I favorite Macs you found on eBay? Favorite Macs. Well, the first one I found um, is I. I, I'm apparently the only one who does the sold ones, which is fine because that gives a, a perspective on pricing. Oh, um, yeah. And the links I put in, when you go I to view forgetting. them, you'll have to click on the see original listing beside the uh, title in the page to see the details. And, and actually, I'm sorry, let me interrupt real quick because I just want to ask Adam. <laughs> Adam, do you follow this stuff very much as like values and what they're going for on eBay and all that stuff? Do you do you follow that much? Uh, yes, uh, for certain products, not for everything. Oh, okay. But a comment that Jeff just made is is um, very key. You want to check the completed items, you know, mm-hmm. the sold items, right? And see what they sold for, because you'll get a range. It's always a range, you know. But you'll see some things that just on there forever and ever and ever. It's like asking price is definitely not what the selling price may be. Yeah, like they want ninety nine ninety nine and ninety nine cents. 
for you know just a standard 512k mac but that's not this one yeah this one's a classic macintosh mac se and you'll have to probably help me out with some of the you know the minor variations um fdhd times two whatever that means um dual that floppy hard drive, drive built in okay that's unusual one, because yeah. i didn't know they made dual two. f the hd ones i thought they did dual drives so super drive is oh what, no like not dual fdhd floppy disk high density yes it's a not dual okay it's just a super drive so two high density disks uh, and one gig of RAM and four, uh, four meg RAM and one, one gigabyte Apple hard drive. Okay, so this is a later model. Yeah, and I'm sorry we keep like we're interrupting specs. you, Jeff, but but Adam, no, no, check it out. Fine. It says dual super drives. That's why I, I didn't think they that. made dual super drives. They only made dual 800k. So Jeff, originally it shipped with two uh, double DD double density drives, and then they came out with the one, and they had a little plate. Where then you have the hard drive inside there, and you just have one FDHD. So maybe this person somehow upgraded it, and they're using somebody did some mods because it has a yeah. cool blue light, laser like blue hard drive light. Oh yeah. Anyways, go ahead. Okay, not a problem. So apparently, people like these modded and tricked out uh, Macintosh Mac SEs. It sold for five hundred and twenty dollars. That blows me away, and wanted to pay that. Sykesville, much. Maryland. Oh, I could have driven there and picked that up. It's not too far away. From Honestly, me. I can't believe anyone paid that much for it, really. Well, one person did because that was the bid. One bid. Well, probably because it's a custom model. I'm just looking at it now. And, yeah, what someone did is they put the second hard drive in the upper slot. I mean, they said, sorry, they put the second floppy in the upper slot, which is normally where the hard drive is. And then they may have moved the hard drive or put in you know, whatever they did. That little blue light at the bottom is definitely not a stock thing. Huh. So it's a custom modification oh, I, of a hard drive-based model to fit in a second floppy. Another justification, at least from the seller's point, is that they used a brand-new um, Apple-branded IBM. Mm-hmm. Really? New Apple-branded IBM. Okay. Uh, one gigabyte SCSI 50-pin hard drive. Well, yeah, 50-pin hard drives are hard to find brand-new. Um, so this is obviously a new old stock drive that these, that this guy put in. So he... He justifies it by saying they sell for 200 plus used and they're new, they're impossible to find. So, hmm. I, I guess if you have something and it has value and you know, you sell it, you know, sell it for what it's worth. Um, I can use the same drive in my uh, Amiga 2000, but I won't spend $200 for it. Hmm. I mean, that's fire yeah. got ripped off. I just, my view. Well, I would have what I would have done is, uh, I mean, just to me, I, I think you're better off, you could spend a hundred dollars and find a decent. Mac SE, um, probably not an SE30, and then you can get one of the you know the flash-based devices, and that'd be better than having even a brand new old stock SCSI hard drive inside of it or whatever. But he does say well, the keyboard is very yellowed. On, David, I'm going to pick Go up on that because that that brings up two t- topics. One is if you replace the a hard drive with a flash drive, that's what I do for my old machines because you can find the parts. It makes them much faster. It also mm-hmm. makes them much quieter because you, yeah. you know squealing hard drives. Um, so, yeah, if you want to use it for any kind of current work, that's the best thing to do. If you want to own a machine because it's old and original, then you want to have something that's original. And you'd want to have the SD with the internal hard drive, one floppy, and then have an external floppy, which they you know did make for this. So if you're buying it for investment because it's an original system, because it's been modified, it's actually worth a lot less. Yeah. So the buyer unfortunately paid too much. The buyer didn't listen to our podcast and, and 
right. and heed that caveat emptor um, <laughs> warning. And but, that's what you have to be careful about, David. You said, do I follow these things? I'm amazed that so many people pay what they do if you just looked around for mm-hmm. stuff. Um, you know, in this case, I think the buyer didn't realize – it's an interesting system, you know, but what are you going to do with it for $600? Right. He's not going to turn it into drive. a fish tank. I think um, – and also, right, your point is, is on that is patience. Padawan. <laughs> patience <laughs> yeah. will really pay off you know, or save you money in the long run. Good for the seller. But very cool. So, so Adam, what do you think a, a stock – we'll use that term – clean – you know, slightly later SE. Let's say it has a hard drive in it. You know, what do you think is a good value? Like you said earlier, about a hundred bucks. Yeah. Okay. You know, the oh, SE thirties. To- frankly, the SE thirties are really the ones you want to get because they have, you know, the much faster processor chip. Mm-hmm. But so you this know. guy basically sold a new old stock SCSI one gig drive and threw in a free Macintosh with it. <laughs> yeah. According to the way he said it's it's you know they're hard to find new. Oh, and by the way, he's got a video on YouTube, a link here to it. He doesn't show the yellow keyboard in his pictures. <laughs> it, no, it's a cool system. It's a neat modification. It's just a matter of the parts aren't worth that much, and it makes it worth less as a collector's item. So you have to ask why yeah. You know, like what, this. what could you really do with that kind of configuration that's worth the price? Exactly. Yeah, it comes down to, you know, because if you're, if you're mostly just going to look at it, then why pay so much? And so, you know, unless you're going to do something with it. And then, see, that's the thing, depending on what you're going to do with it. Like, like Adam, you were saying like an SE30 versus an SE. And absolutely, SE30 will blow the doors off an SE, but it's all relative about what you're going to do with it. If you really, if you want to just like experience some play around some old games or old stuff from 1988, let's say, or 89, whenever the SC30 then came out. Um, you know, does it matter that it's that much faster versus just playing around on an SE? So it's just kind of, yeah. Depends on what you're going to do with it. Mm-hmm. So the SC30 is a, a 68,030 processor? Is yeah. that what 30 stands for? And then the SE yes. is a 68,000? Exactly. Yeah, yeah okay. the, the SE was just a redesigned Mac Plus, basically, but okay. they had replaced the. Um, it, it brought in the Apple Desktop Bus, and um, I guess it was it was like twenty percent faster, I think, than the Mac Plus. I actually worked at an Apple dealer when the Mac SEs came out. So, um, and it had a slot. Yeah. Anything with the SE. SE stands for System Expansion, mm-hmm. and it was the first compact Mac with any kind of expansion slot. It came out at the same time as the Mac 2s. Right. And then the SE30 was essentially a Mac 2 CX or CI, which was the 030 processor in that little compact Mac. Yeah, case. and it was like oh, crazy have- fast until the FX came out. I have two like this, but I think they're called the Mac Classic. Mm-hmm. That's a later um, model. Yeah. And that was a cost-reduced version of, of the SE, basically. Okay. So, um, And they're both having problems powering up right now. So, so uh, okay. So, Moving on. Moving my, on. My next items, I actually had other items listed until just 10 minutes before we started recording. And I picked the next two items. We'll start one of them first is because of the... Mac Luggable, the portable Mac. I'm glad you. The reason why I picked these is because I actually have two of them. Oh, somewhere I have one with the backlight and one without, and they both need batteries. Yeah, 
and they won't work without kit, one. And, they, and I'll probably have to do a cap kit on them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I hope to. And one of them even has. No, they both have the case. Um, but they have the just some aging, yellowing in some parts. But uh, when they were running, because somebody gave them to me, they were running. I just left them sit a while. Um, they ran well. But I had a little problem with the batteries uh, because they don't give you a beefy power supply. These things work. You have to. It's a combination of the power supply and battery to keep it running at all um, for the most part. And it worked. It was great. It worked like a Macintosh. But I have them stored away somewhere. I got to find them. And get them restored. And send them to especially me. Especially when I start seeing, yeah. <laughs> especially <laughs> when I start seeing some prices like uh, I'm coming across here. That's kind of uh, low, actually. It seems to me. I mean, this well, one, yeah, the first one says have near a- mint working. Um, it says best offer accepted. Yeah, Something so we don't know, out. but it sold for less than three forty nine. But near mint working, he says no AC adapter included. Well, that's a seven and a half volt um, adapter. I mean, you could fabricate one of those if you. Uh, be careful. I'm going to chime in here. That's, okay. that's a good price for a portable. They sell for about 250 not in mint condition, but, but worth oh, really? 5300 The power supply is very similar to what they had in the early 100 series power books. I mean, it predated it. It's beige and not dark uh, gray. But you don't want to use the power book power supply. And if you do make your own... As you said, with that battery, it basically runs off the battery, and then mm-hmm. the power supply recharges the battery. The battery is lead acid, which is why it's so heavy. It's a little car battery. You can buy them rebuilt on eBay. You know, you can find someone who rebuilds them. Um, I would just get a rebuilt battery and an original power supply. They're very, very picky about that. Mm-hmm. Okay. I considered actually uh, rebuilding mine with uh, uh, nickel metal hydride. And I, I don't know if you can you do – maybe you can do that. I think there's – If you can fit it in there and if you can get the same current capacity and the same voltage. right. It should work. It should work. But your charger, that's the other side. As long as it's not overcharging it or if you put in something to control the charge rate, as long as you're putting the right current into the battery, mm-hmm. it should work. And it, as long as yeah. the battery can supply the proper current when it's operating, uh, then it's fine. On uh, paper, you're absolutely right. Um, try it on one of your lease. Try it on one of your portables first, and make sure it's one that, if anything goes wrong, you can afford to lose. I, I'm serious. It's okay. very, very picky. I've had a lot of problems with portables. Yes, they're nice when they run, and they're very easy to to stop them running. Um, if you can find a good solution, honestly, publicize it because there's a lot of people who would like to. Yeah, I tend to, to do do that if I find. I just it's one of those I got to get time to do it and and yep. and breaking apart those cases for the batteries they're hermetically sealed you know I'm I draw blood anytime I start playing around with things like that in fact that's how it is with me uh, any job like this is not successful until I draw blood <laughs> if I draw blood it's going to work <laughs> every repair I did to my house was the same way <laughs> I drew blood somehow but it worked and if I didn't draw blood I had a problem with it so now, now one um, thing interesting about the portable, if you're looking at the picture is, so you have the ability of, um, moving the trackpad front. It could be on either side and you can see the, the lid, right, you could slide them back and forth. Yeah. The lid with the display, you know, it has the little notch out for it to be on either side. Um, but obviously this predates the first power books that came out, which then set the standard of pushing the keyboard back and having the trackball in the middle and having palm rests, which we're all still using today. That same, that, that, 
was a major redesign of the laptop. What was that? 1991, I guess, when the first power books came out. Yep. But I'm um, just to mention too, I've owned a couple of late eighties, just generic DOS laptops that are somewhat similar to this. And, and they had that same thing with them. I don't know why they did this, but the same exact deal with the with lead acid. Is that what you, you said? The battery is. Yes. Those, we're, yeah. We're, it, it ran from the battery and all the charger did was re, recharge the battery. It's and like then so the charger. So the, yeah, the charger, I'm sorry. So the battery goes dead. It doesn't work at all anymore. So I've had two other like just generic DOS laptops that that happened with. And you can probably go to places like Battery Plus and buy uh, a near identical lead acid battery to put inside of one of these things. The thing with lead acid batteries, you got to keep them topped off. It's like your car battery. Yeah. If it goes dead for any length of time, it's going to sulfate and it's not going to work. Right. Got to add water every so often. Well, they're sealed, so <laughs> just, just drill a hole in them. Yeah. <laughs> Although I have done that already. You can pop the caps off those, and you can redo the water, add water, but the really? mileage may vary with it. Yes, you can, but you'll never get the caps back on. You'll have to like glue them back in place so nothing leaks out. Uh, it, I did it just to see if I could get it to work, and I was able to revive a lead acid battery from an old um, one of those um, UPS power supplies, mm-hmm. similar concept, um, but it didn't last long, so I, I, I'm just one of those people. I'll try it, see what I get out of it, but at least I learned how those batteries work. So you picked uh, two Macintosh portables. Yes. I, what I was trying to do is find one with and one without the backlight screen, but that was difficult. So I ended up just picking two for price points. Okay. Uh, the first one was uh, a little expensive. This one says uh, this has a carry case. It sold for 105 106 bucks. Um, uh. with nine bids even. Now this one looks like it might be the non-backlit version. Just something about the the color of the screen or the, the contrast or, or tone of the screen. You can't tell from that, actually. You, 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 until it boots, you know, the screen looks exactly the same. That's right, because the, um, there wasn't a sl- an external slider for brightness. That was software-controlled, right. wasn't it? Yes. And so um, this doesn't have a power supply or a battery. It just says it needs a battery, yeah. Oh, no power supply either? Well, I don't, they don't say, but I don't see okay. it in the picture. Th- but it's got an attractive little case. Apple branded even. It's got that deal with the space bar that turned yellow. It's kind of weird. Yeah. They all do on the portable. Hmm. Just the space bar. It's that's they must have made it out of different, you know, type of plastic slightly. So that's how mine works. Or so works. Adam, do you know did so did Apple actually sell a backlit portable or did they sell a kit that, that- Yes. No, they there were two models um about a year or so apart. The first one was non backlit. And then the, the second rev had a backlit screen, or the option for the backlit screen. And could you make your original one backlit? Did they sell that kit? Yes, it was a kit. You could you could bring it in and have it upgraded. Okay, that uh, that was going they, on, I guess, when I joined the army because I worked for an Apple dealer, and then I moved, and then I joined the army at the end of 1990. So that was right around, you know. Yep. The stuff. The was case going on. is pretty neat. Um, you can't really see it from the pictures in this one, but it's a serious case. I mean, the portable uh, Jeff you mentioned was called the luggable, and that was it. Really, was called the luggable by the public, not by Apple. I mean, that lead acid battery is like five or six pounds alone. That's right. But the case, if you look at it closely, there's actually two compartments that you can put in the power supply in one of them and a spare battery in the other one. God, man, so you carry that thing around with two batteries in the power supply, you know, you get a full day's use out of it, you know, and you'd also get your upper body workout. <laughs> Could you imagine if they made a docking station for this? 
It's a neat – if you use it, you know, you play with it on the t- – when it's working, you know, if you sit on a table with it and it's not portable, it's just there. It's actually a nice little form factor, you know, with the trackball and all that to use that's also like a Mac 2 in a case. And I think um, – how much did a Mac portable weigh? Was it like 24 pounds just by itself? Not that much. About – no, but it was about 16 pounds with the battery. Okay. Oh, that's lighter than my uh, portable Commodore 64, and that doesn't even have a battery in it. Yeah. It's 28 pounds, I think, for the Commodore SX-64. I mean, that- it was impressive from the standpoint at the time that it was, you, you know, it was it was cost a lot of money. And yes, it had its down, a lot of, you know, it was heavy and it wasn't backlit, the original one. But I, so I worked at an Apple dealer when this came out. I actually got the borrow one over a weekend one time. I had a blast. But it was in every way a real Mac that was portable and yeah. had a battery. So that alone was a pretty big deal. And the two it I was have a were the portable first Mac, not a laptop. Yeah, exactly. And seven thousand over seven thousand dollars new. Let's not forget. <laughs> yeah, they're really expensive. Yeah, this person gave me both of them. They, they they just got newer Macs. So, and this was like the late '90s where nobody really had an idea anything was was going to be worth anything. I so, did. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I didn't at the time. I said, okay, but they look neat, and I'll take one. And then then the next week they gave me their other one. I wasn't expecting the second one. Yeah, those were the days. People gave you old computers. Yep, yeah, that well, small window of time at the end of the 20th, 20th century. Jeff, um, getting back to the battery issue, if you can figure out a way to make it work you know, with a more modern battery and a standard power supply, there's a lot of people who in the you know Mac collect community who would be happy to know that. And I'd be happy to put up an article about that on my vintage Mac museum site. Well, I can't guarantee anything soon, but it is a goal of mine. Cause I, I really do want to get those working again. Cause I also have a portable, um, um, Toshiba T one or T 1200 similar battery issue, except mm-hmm. those are Nike, had batteries. Rebuilding batteries is something that I don't like to do, but I know I have to do if I want to keep these things running. If if I want to do it on the cheap, um, I have no problems doing the work. It's just, yeah, it'll come down to, all right, this is what I have. This is what I need. This is the charge rate I need. This is the power output the battery's supposed to do. And then I have to design accordingly. But yes, I would like to convert it to nickel metal hydride because uh, they'll charge better. And you can buy solder tab batteries that you just fill the case with them and they'll probably be lighter, but they'd have a similar capacity. So Adam, let's let's move along to you. It looks like your first find is a, I think, pretty good deal here on a nice old system. Yeah, I have some older. I, I wasn't sure what age you said. Pick three Mac stuff, and I actually wasn't sure. Um, <laughs> all is long. it's been thirty years for the Mac at this. All one, is so, welcome. Right, I focused on some of the early stuff, but in terms of you know prices for the money. Mm-hmm. So the first one that I have uh, this actually is also a completed auction, but it's a Mac five twelve K which was the second model by a few months. The 128K was the first, and then the 512K was the same thing with more RAM. They called it the Fat Mac. And the Mac barely need, uh, badly needed the RAM to actually get anything done. So back in that time, 84, 85, you really wanted a 512K. Just, if, just like seen on stage with Steve Jobs. Yes, the 512K <laughs> in the demo. <laughs> and the public got shipped the beta units, of course. Um, so this one was a nice, clean system working. It's the computer itself, the keyboard, uh, external floppy drive, which is very key because there's no hard drive those days. So you wanted your boot floppy and your work floppy as two different ones. 
uh, and the mouse. And as I say, you know, some yellowing. I like the description here. Um, let's see. It says the rubber feet are missing or they are melting condition, which is true with all that old <laughs> Apple stuff. You leave the keyboard on the shelf for a while and it sort of glues itself to the, you know, to the shelf or the desk. The rubber breaks down. Yeah, I put, I put little pieces of paper on the bottom. You know, they did it with crazy glue. Um, I like this. Computer is in good cosmetic condition with some discoloration from age. There are some nicks and dings on the case, you know, but that gives the set real vintage look. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's got character, right? So the whole thing was three fifty was what it sold for. I mean, excuse me, um, two fifty. Two fifty, yeah. And, and that's just a quaint looking shipping. keyboard. Yeah, yeah. It's a small keyboard. Um, no numeric keypad. No arrow keys. Apple wanted to force people with the Mac to use the mouse, so there were no arrow keys on that small keyboard. With the Mac Plus, they have that same sort of big keyboard shape. It's just wider, has the arrow keys, and has the numeric keypad. Mm-hmm. Um. Nice sound, if any of you ever used the old Mac. It's got a very distinctive sound, you know, on that keyboard. <laughs> well, guess um, what? I, uh, if you look at the last picture here, it's the model number. And that is, in fact, an original Macintosh that was upgraded to a 512. Um, possibly. They're all M001. We'd have to look at the serial number. That's listed there too. Well, and so I could be wrong, but I did work at a couple of Apple dealers. And so that sticker is on the underside of the front face. And when you took it to an Apple dealer and got it um, upgraded, they, of course, um, replaced the larger board and you got a new back. So I think, and also point out another thing on the back, if you look at the mouse and its screws, that looks to be an original 128 Actually, Mac no, mouse. you're correct, because the 512K is the uh, 001W or W1WP or things like that. There's a prefix on it. So this was – actually, that tells a, a good story about this, and that's mm-hmm. a good find, David. This was a 128K originally, upgraded to a 512. Yeah. You got the new motherboard with more RAM. You got the new back that says Macintosh 512. Um very expensive. What, like fifteen hundred bucks? You know, not a cheap upgrade at the yeah. time. To do it again. One of those things. If they, it was necessary at the time to use it to get any work done. If you'd left it as an original one twenty eight K Mac without anything else, if it worked, it would be worth a thousand dollars. But it, you lose I, money upgrading. It looks like in myself when I can tell. The, the, I, I believe the, all these pieces are original. They all are together, and. um I honestly, this person got a fantastic deal on this now, knowing this, because I think if you redid this auction and you and you pointed that out and you played up the story even more and stuff, it would easily get. I, you're right. I don't think it'd be worth as much as original 128. With that's not upgraded, but it would be worth more. A 512Ks, I would tell people it's worth up to 500 ish, depending on what it comes with. This one doesn't have. It has a bag. Um, does it have the printer with it? Has the carry bag, which is nice. Uh, I doesn't didn't have see the a printer. printer. Yeah. So if it had the printer and it had that some of the box with the artwork and all of that stuff, that's where you get about five hundred for it. But mm. it's a good deal. You, you this is for two fifty five fifty shipping. You get you know essentially the first Mac uh, in design and you know a running system. You know that it's this two fifty is much better deal than the you know almost six hundred for the SE. And the keyboard doesn't work. Did it say that? In the description, unfortunately, the keyboard does not work. Oh. And it has a 
key missing. Ah, uh, yes. Oh, I, I didn't read it all the way. That can be replaced. They can get those are easy to find though, if you needed to. Hmm. So the, that's the first auction, and I I brought that up because you know I thought it was as you said, Dave, it was a good deal. You know, if you're looking for. For an old Mac, really the real classic stuff, the original Mac, the 512, the Plus, you know, those sort of first few years of the platform, you can wind up paying a lot more, um, you know, than you have to if you don't know what it's worth. A Mac Plus is worth about 100 bucks just for the system working. It's not worth hundreds of dollars. You know, 512 is worth a few hundred bucks. 250 is good. Again, if you have all the packaging and everything, it's worth more. Um, but it's people charge, you know, sometimes they ask way too much money for it. And then if you see one at a garage sale for 20 bucks, you know, it's worth picking up, even if it doesn't work. <laughs> right. So the second auction I picked, actually, is to show the other end of the, the scale, is a 128K Mac. And this is also a very nice package, uh, significantly more money, $2,000. This is available now, if anyone wants to, and it has a, buy, has a make offer also. This is an original 128K Mac with all the stuff that came with it. So it's a working system, you know, which is key. Um, it has the box, which has that Picasso-style artwork that was so lovely on the outside and on a lot of the inside, you know, packaging the keyboard sleeve and the documentation sleeve and all that stuff. Um, they have the printer. They have the original image writer that came with it. Uh, let's see. Does he have a carry bag with this one? Well, this is only 60 miles away from me. Well, there you you better go get it. Yeah, I should. Now, this was um, – let's see. Now, what do you recognize, David, if you look at the rear of this one? Okay. It, it says 128K, so we know it's a 128K. But get... what can you tell me about it based on the fact that it says Macintosh 128K? Oh, see. Where's that picture? Here it is. Hmm. I believe it means it was, a mo- it was released after the 512K was released. It was actually released at the same time the 512K was released. The first Macintosh, an original 128K, just said Macintosh. Right. When they offered the 512K, they still made the 128K, you know, as a $500 less model, and it had that Macintosh 128K sticker. So this is actually a second revision 128K. Hmm. Yeah. Slightly different logic board. Small difference. It wouldn't affect the price on this, but if you want an original. You have to look for that original back case, and you also have to look at the logic board and make sure the newer ones have a little mark where you can mark them either as 128 or 512. Oh, right. The originals don't. So, again, if you're a purist. But this, the packaging, what I tell people with a lot of old systems, especially Macs of this era, if you have the packaging and it's in good shape, it doubles the value of the computer. And that's not true with a lot of the later stuff, but it is for this kind of stuff. So two grand for a working original 128K Mac with all the packaging, not cheap, but that's about what – I'd say that's the high end of what they're going for. Yeah, i say you could probably get it for like – it only has a day and 17 hours as of our recording right now. So you're probably – make an offer here. probably get it just a little cheaper than that. You can. If you're patient, you can. Um, if you're going to jump at a $2,500 offer or tons of those others around here, you're overpaying. Just be patient. Look at completed listings. Um, it, it depends how much the packaging is worth to you. You know, If you don't need the packaging, you can get a 128K Mac in the $1,000 range. And just uh, – Jeff, you'll appreciate this, by the way. Adam was talking about the mother, the logic board, we call them in Macs, yeah. where when the 512 came out, you could it could be marked you know, as either, showing the, eight, you know, the date. Yeah. Another thing – um, and I'm not sure if this is 100% consistent, depending on when the very first 512s came out and then the 
you know, later on, but I think so. Another thing tells sign of the logic boards is the earliest Mac 128s had um, that type of 68,000 where it had like the, it wasn't just all black, you know, chip. It had like okay. the silver square in the middle. All right. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Like there's, yep. yeah. Like Intel was, chips uh, are like that too. chip, right? It was white with the. Oh, I'm sorry. White. You're right. Some of them were white with the little with like metal, a metal thing. Probably gold or silver. Yeah. As you said. Yeah. So uh, some of the earliest Mac logic boards have that type of 68,000 in them. So that's well, just getting the into volume it's getting into it that. to find it. <laughs> it's a, these were hard to open, weren't they? Those were so in the day. Absolutely, they were hard to open. Now you need some knowledge and the right tools to open them. I would rather open these types of Macs than a modern iMac with the glass glued in place. <laughs> pardon my French. No, Any day. No, we have an explicit bit. So you've uh, you know, we'll you beep, beep that out. out if you want. Hey, <laughs> um, you can service older machines, and you know they need servicing when they're older. So Apple, if you're listening, we need to get into the machines twenty years from now. They won't all go in landfills. <laughs> but I digress. All right. So, okay. I know we're taking a lot of time here. Um, no, it's okay. So, so moving along. The third auction is related to this. So I picked the three because they're all that same, you know, early Apple period. This actually is 1986. So we're into the Mac Plus era. <clears throat> the Mac Plus was really the first successful Mac. It had enough RAM. It had one meg. It had the big keyboard. You know, that's re- the Mac sales really took off in this in the third year there at the Mac Plus. And one of the reasons was that little accessory or quite large accessory called a laser writer. Mm-hmm. And you know, the Apple laser writer was that would you know, the Mac Plus plus the laser writer plus software like Adobe PageMaker was the start of the desktop publishing industry. Mm-hmm. You know, now yeah. for ten thousand dollars, you can get a you know a couple of computers and a laser printer, and put out a magazine or a newsletter, or whatever, in your office, and it that was just seminal, and it was definitely you know. Oh, it was rapid. magic in nineteen eighty six. Familiar is is this like a rebadged uh, HP LaserJet one? No, it's a, uh, it, really it is based on the same. HP LaserJet three. Okay. Well, no, no, I don't think that's right. Well, no. It's an engine. Actually, it's a it's an HP engine. Okay. Uh, it may not. I'm not sure if it's a. Actually, isn't it a Canon? Many engine? years ago, I worked with, yeah. with the original laser jets, just field repair. You know, you know, just replacing toner and stuff well, like that. Well, it had and the same the, guts, and the Jeff. Yeah, but yeah. Actually, HP just, came after Apple with that one, with the laser jet. So okay. Yeah, it was probably the same engine, and actually, I think the the laser writer two series. So this is the original laser writer. This is laser writer plus. They had the laser writer and the laser writer plus, which basically just had more Ram and fonts and things. And then a few years later, they came out with the laser writer two series, which I think was even more similar to one of the HPs. Uh, But this was, you know, it it had that Canon engine, which was the only one in the world, you know, for, for that price point. Um, And there's one, there's one other thing to note. So in the, not a trifecta. What, what what would you call things that are four? But the 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 magic you know storm that came together or whatever to finally help the Mac start succeeding was of course the one megabyte sort of fully realized Mac, the Mac yep. Plus, and then it was this laser writer, um, and then of course software like like PageMaker. But there's a key thing here that the laser writer had on board, and that was PostScript. Yes. So that was also a, a key. Of um, you know, really getting what you see is what you get. Um, printing out of it, so again, that, that was, was like magic stuff. Yep. Adobe, Adobe was this fledgling little company that made a font technology called PostScript that mm-hmm. Apple licensed. Aldis 
was the company that did PageMaker. Right. The Plus had the RAM. The Plus could actually go to four megabytes, although that was prohibitively expensive at the time. Later on, it became better. Had the big keyboard. The Plus also had SCSI, which allowed you to connect a hard yes. drive. Yep. And that's the fifth thing. The LaserWriter also had a SCSI port yep. to connect the hard drive so you could store your fonts and things on it. And you could daisy-chain SCSI devices, of course. So, um, so, so this is not something you probably would want to use. Uh, it's more, you know, if you want to have in your collection or what have you. Uh, you could get them working. They're tough to keep working like anything else old. It's 75 yeah. bucks, 62 bucks shipping. So it's 150 or so. You make offer. Um, heavy. <laughs> yes, they are. If it's anything like those uh, LaserJet 1s and 2s, yeah, they are horribly heavy. Backbreaking. But you know, any museum that's going to have their Mac description, if it's not the first one, will probably have a Mac Plus and things like that. And you know, if you want to have your little office desk set up, you would have a laser writer there and all that. So it's a seminal part. And also in the days when Apple made printers, which they no longer do, but they certainly did for the first decade or so when the Mac came out. So do you have one of those? Do you have a laser writer? I have a laser writer two actually, okay. uh, which is the next generation, a little more tank like. And I've <laughs> actually I know somebody who's helped me both rebuild Mac portables and batteries, and he works on laser writers, so <laughs> we do a lot of work together. Um, and he's refurbished a you know mine for me uh, to get it running again, and I need it occasionally. You know, sometimes I'll get old files from people that there's absolutely no way to get the data out of it. Mm. You can't save it as anything else. You can't convert to anything else. You could print it or you could take a screen snapshot. So you print it. But from a Mac Plus running System 6, you can't print to a modern printer. So I will use once a year or two, turn on the old laser writer, whole house smells of plastic and toner. You know how <laughs> yeah. those things work. Oh, I love that smell, yeah. <laughs> Takes 27 minutes to warm up until the light comes on. But print out with few jams, hopefully. <laughs> one one <laughs> page every want. two minutes, right? Yeah. And then, well, that's why I like the LaserWriter 2s, because those actually are a little beefier at that point. Um, and then often I'll just scan the stuff in and send someone a PDF. <laughs> but, you mm-hmm. know, if you, need the, if you need to print from a really old system, that's when you need those, you know, those period printers. Okay, and I found a couple other things. Now, Come on, Adam. What's the big idea? Pushing your way in here onto our show and helping yourself to extra servings of eBay auctions? Yeah. Yeah, we're not going to have you back here again, Rosen. Well, when are you next going to be covering the Mac? Well, no. No, no. Yeah, so there you go. And that's the Too Many Mac eBay auction sketch, everybody. (laughs) All right. (laughs) <laughs> it's goofy it's time for beer yet <laughs> i don't have any what do you got sam adams thank you thank you are you a little worn out on that <laughs> uh i have come to realize recently that if you stick to the seasonals uh sam adams is actually pretty interesting they have seasonals <laughs> that seem to come and go every two weeks uh, making a note here edit out beer <laughs> <Stop>. <laughs> oh i had a sam adam the the holiday seasonal it's really good it's really strong too but it was really good Boston, Boston Lager, um, don't bother. Well, go ahead, go ahead, Adam. You can, you can, uh, you're our special guest. So go ahead and do those other two auctions. So a couple little things from the same period that I just thought was cute, um, and one was really absolutely critical. If you had one of these old Macs, mm-hmm. 128K, 512 Plus, uh, they didn't have any fans. 
And that was a big thing with Steve Jobs. You know, yeah. it was an appliance. He didn't want it to make noise. It didn't have fans. You know, and it was nice. It sat in the house. But that also means it cooked itself from the inside. And it, actually, that's a problem Apple has to this day, that their equipment runs too hot because they don't want to have fans or make it too big. But with by the time it got to the Plus... You know, now you had more memory. You were running more. Um, you know, it th- was hotter inside the computer because of the way it was operating, and there were a lot of thermal failures just because the things overheated. So Kensington made this little thing, you know, called the System Saver Mac. It sat on the top of the computer, um, sort of snapped into the carrying handle, gave you a couple of plugs, so it gave you a spare AC outlet to pl- to use your hard drive or printer or whatever, and it was just a fan sitting on top of the computer pulling air out. You know, an external fan instead of an internal fan. But almost any Mac in those days, after a while, had one of those. Yeah. And if you're using a Mac now, I mean, I have a Mac Plus that I use now for the file transfer work. It has one of those. You know, it sort of became the you really need this. Apple doesn't like it, but if you want your equipment to last more than two years, get a fan. And I, I do know from working in Apple dealers at the time that, um, and I'm trying to think, was it the was it the logic board that failed or the analog board? I want to say the analog boards, which were the, you know, so obviously they are all-in-ones and they had a power supply that drove the display as well as the rest of the computer. And I, and Mac Plus is, you know, still a small percentage, but more than, it, it had a failure rate with this happening. So that by having sense because that runs hotter to begin with. Having bought, you know, if you bought one of these things in a day, it was a great investment. You, you certainly probably got more more time out of your mac plus you know is it worth 85 bucks if you if you just spend a thousand dollars on a 128k mac and you want one to work yes uh, um, yeah. if you are patient you know again with old computer stuff if you just look at flea markets or craigslist or things like that you could just get them you know they're around because <laughs> they sold in large numbers Why is if you really like want one below know. they're like 35 bucks this one's yeah. saying it's new in box so i guess which helps know. You know, if you if you would buy if this was selling today, brand new Macintosh with system savers, um, it you wouldn't have a system saver. You would buy the Macintosh, and then they would sell you on that three year three year extended warranty oh, yeah. plan in the store. So if it does break down by heat, you're covered. And that's probably oh, no, what, that's they exactly the what they do. Oh, that's exactly what they do. That's also why they don't service them. You get the Apple Care; it's good for three years. After Apple will service it up to five years, seven in California, and that's it. Don't get water and in. They it. don't care, right? It's not their problem. So if they overheat after four years, eh, not <laughs> not their problem. So what's your last so it's item? Not a new problem, but anyway, interesting thing. The last thing is a very fun, not a critical device at all, but fun in the day. Yeah, very cool um, thing. Scanners, like you know, laser printers weren't cheap and were coming down in price. Scanners were even more expensive. So this one company made a little scanner attachment that worked with your image writer. And you took out the ink cartridge, uh, which you know, snapped in over the printhead, and you put in this basically piece of electronics that was a scanner that sat over the printhead. And it printed – you put your document in and the printer would you know, go back and forth like it was printing a document. But instead – it was taking an image of it line by line with this scanner called the ThunderScan, and then you connected it to your Mac, and you got <laughs> amazing. Two days later, days. you'd have fairly <laughs> grainy in our perspective today, but you know, black and white images of uh, whatever you put in the printer to scan. Pretty amazing stuff at the time, actually. Yeah, yeah. they, they saw pretty clever how it worked. Computers at the time too, or something. Other companies did something similar. It's like the idea took off 
for a short amount of time until people realize they can't afford to buy them brand new. It was this 249 complete back in what the 80s. Um, you would have definitely needed. Yeah. You would have needed this. This wasn't a novelty to buy unless you had money to burn. You would have needed this to get images into your desktop publishing system. Right. And I think it sold fairly well. I mean, all things considered, probably yeah, sold it was around for the for Macintosh a while. than it did say for the Commodore 64. Right, <laughs> and that was because it was all tied into you know the desktop publishing because they needed images scanned to to put them in your documents. In but, fact, on the box you have the the Mac, the image writer printer as an input scanner, and a laser writer as output. But I do remember seeing one in a Commodore magazine for Commodore printers that did the same thing. It it would scan it and it would feed the printer one line at a time while it scanned. And never owned one, but always wanted one. So I have one of these. A lot of the stuff in my collection, which is in my house. You know, you get a lot of equipment, and then at a certain point, you run out of room for equipment, and you want these other interesting things. David, I know you know that dilemma. Mm-hmm. Um, I have an Image Writer One sitting here in my office, and on top of it is a ThunderScan in the box, just because it's good. People come over and they see it, and it's always like, "Oh yeah, I remember that thing." You know, so it was short-lived, but it was an important little piece of history back in those early Mac days. I just don't understand why there's a picture of a Romulan guy on the cover there. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out if it's a Romulan or like Nesferatu. <laughs> it certainly looks like the commander in um, from a from a distance, yeah. From uh, the Romulan commander, yeah. His so ears are kind of pointed too. For our listeners, when go look at the picture, and it's it's a clown, some a guy yeah. in clown makeup, but yeah, Romulan clown. <laughs> so I well, now we see, used up all we'll David's time. Floor now, oh. yes. <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot, Adam. Now we're out of time. Now I'll go a little bit faster on mine. So I've got three and, and great stuff. I think we're, we're doing a good job of, you know, yeah, the Mac's been around for over 30 years. So come on, can't cover everything. But I think we're doing a good job of covering um, a lot of the classics and a good, you know, sort of overview here. I, well, mostly we're still in the, the mid to, to late 80s. So I'm going to take a slightly, slightly newer than that. Um, so my first one is called Collectible Vintage Apple Macintosh PowerBook Duo 230 with Doc M7779 Works. And um, I've always been fascinated with, uh, and this is a live auction, so it only has what, no eight word, hours. word rare in it? So it'll, it'll have Steve ended. Jobs. Or Steve Jobs. <laughs> it'll have ended by tomorrow, but currently not a bad price. Uh, well, it's, oh, it's buy it now, $135, $1850 shipping yeah, to me cheap. anyway from Colorado, but... You know, um, again, this was a low-end duo doc, but a duo, PowerBook duo. But in my opinion, uh, you know, what difference oh, does it make? the doc, so it's both of these. Yeah, the only so thing is the doc the is missing. goes in and, and uh, yep. It was a, okay. a great thing where you got the best of both worlds. It acted as a desktop computer with a dock, and then it would it actually eject the laptop out like a floppy. Gronk. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, pretty cool. And uh, we never got to see it working on the show Seinfeld, but the Duo Dock was one of the, the, I think, five different Macs Seinfeld had in his apartment over the years. Do you know, Adam, it says it's missing the the um, power cord for the dock. Isn't that, wouldn't that just be a standard power cord? Uh, I think it is. I, mean, I don't think it shows pictures. any pictures of the back. Oh, yeah, it does. Yeah, it is. It's just a standard. It's just a regular power cord. So anyway, the, the Duo Dock was... Uh, was pretty clever, pretty unique stuff uh, at Apple. And you can see it has the PowerBook um, 
you know, design with the keyboard pushed back, the trackball in the middle. You know, this is the way all laptops are to this day for the most part, other than they have trackpads and they're a lot thinner and everything. But that pretty much is the the form factor we use now. And I want to say this this is from uh, 93, maybe? maybe? Their first duo duos? Maybe even 92? Probably 93, somewhere around there. Let's see. So early 90s. So what, you just snapped it in and then locked it in place? Yeah, so it... you would close it and you would stick it into the, the dock and it would then grab it and suck it in. 92. So it's motorized. Yeah. And yeah, then, it actually is uh, like a big floppy, pulls it in and, and you know, then ejects it. <laughs> Slowly. And then it would, uh, you know, and then now you got your keyboard and your mouse and your desk and a display and whoop, that comes up and it's a desktop. And then when you're done, you push the button and it slowly spits it out. And now you take your laptop on the road. So, David, I'm going to give you a long view here because one of the interesting things with my, you know, personal experience in working with Apple, I mean, the Mac is really the longest running personal computer brand around. Yeah. Love it or hate it, it survived a very long time. Mm-hmm. And Apple tends to do things in cycles. So, what if you look at the PowerBook Duo as the first iteration of what's now the MacBook Air? Small, yeah. light, yeah. slower. Not as capable, but yep. get better battery life, and you would use outside accessories to improve what it, you know what you needed it to do. Right, and it was meant for the traveler, you know, to be small and light and compact on the go. And they've come back to that idea time and time again, and it's now actually now the twelve-inch MacBook, but the MacBook Air is really uh, the latest iteration of what started with the duos. Mm-hmm. And I think um, in the the late the last incarnation of the duos, which are PowerPC. I think that became even more kind of clear, even though they weren't that different. But I'm trying to think what what's making me say that. I think they got because they got a little thinner and even a little lighter and stuff and color and everything. One thing with this one, it's not color. I'm pretty certain. And but then you put it in the dock and you could have color. Right, you could have an so, external monitor. So that was neat. So yeah, it gave you just what you needed for portability, which was a very efficient design back then. Of course, Macs were always expensive, so it wasn't cheap. I'm going to say off the top of my head, 1992, this is a $5,000 get-up here, maybe. Something like that. Uh, actually, Duo 210 initial was uh, Duo 210, not 230. All right, 230. Oh, the 210 was the first one, huh? Base price is 2610, but okay. the dock is probably another thousand. One or 2000, yeah. All right, maybe so people thousand. spent that kind of money. It's a bargain. Yeah, okay. you had your business right. people and your, you know, it was. Uh, you know, but they weren't like a big seller. And of course, in the early 90s, especially by the mid 90s, the Mac was very much a niche or a niche, is that the right word, sort of part of the marketplace. So, all right, we'll move it along. The next one I chose because uh, I, it's kind of significant in the realm of Macintosh, a little bit. It's sort of the beginning of the end for, or the, uh, the beginning of the battle days for Apple before Steve Jobs came back. But this is a Macintosh Performa 600 computer with monitor, keyboard, and mouse. And it says tested. This is one of three uh, low cost, the very first run of Performas, starting with the 200, which was a, they all came out at the same time. So the two Performa 200 was a Mac Classic 2. And then the Performa 400 was a LC2. And then this Performa 600 was, I don't, 2VX, I think. And these were the first of the Performas around 1994, I want to say, 95, somewhere in there. 90, no, 93, 94. And so these were sold in like Sears and uh, uh, Office Depot and places like that. When they started looking like boring beige boxes along with well, the IBM counterparts. It right? was part of Apple's strategy to try to 
you know, get out there more to, to not just sell an Apple deal. Cause you only had Apple dealers back then. And, and then you had your, you know, online, not online, but magazines, you know, uh, mail order business. So they were trying to expand and I'm not sure how successful it was, but it really just muddied the waters about, you know, in the end of the performer run, there was just so many variations and so many, it became all confusing. It's like the mattress, you know, you won't find a lower price anywhere because yeah. every no two stores carry the same model. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So they had variants. The Performer 600 was Sears version and the 603 yep. you know, was JCPenney's version and it was like – and they're crippled machines. They were all – in order to sell them cheaper, they basically took their standard line machines and you know took out caches and made lower lower RAM and stuff like that. How do these compare to like the LC2 and LC3 series? Same machines, different brand Is it names. Just a, okay, because I have uh, a couple LC2s in, in my collection, and uh, I, I, I heard of the Performas. I don't think I've ever been near one before. You know, The closest I get is the eBay image here. Um, but I didn't what? know how they compared at that era. Well, they had performance. LC stood for low-cost Mac, and it was that little tiny pizza box shape. And they had performer versions of all those models. Yeah, so the well. 400 was the LC2. And actually, okay, so they were just beefed up hardware. Yeah, my first Mac, beefed color Mac. down hardware. My in, first, the, in the performer or the LC2? The, well, let, wait a minute. Performer was worse. The L, no, really? Wasn't. Okay. No, I had a Performa 400, and it was exactly the same as the LC2. But the LC in and of itself was uh, not particularly a great Mac because right. I compare it to a 386SX. What, okay. what, what the PC world did there is they took a true 32-bit processor, and they stuck it on a 286 motherboard, which was 16-bit. And the same thing happened with the LC. So that, okay, so they, they cut a few bus lines or something yeah. like that. So so my Performa 400, which I bought at Sears, and it was my first color Mac. It was it was just like an LC2, but it was all but it was packaged as a you know all together system with and it came with Claris Works and other software, which was nice. It was bundled and stuff. But um, anyway, so this machine, you know, as a as a an older Mac from that time frame, and it's, it's going for ninety five dollars. Buy it now. They want a hundred dollars shipping, at least from here to from Oregon to here. So that's that's pretty he- heavy duty, but not a bad old system for you know if you could pick it up for less than a hundred bucks. I think. Well, if you do UPS ground, it's only fifty seven eighty two. See, and the funny thing about it, at least in my opinion, is it was a bit of a dog. Some of these are a bit of a dog computer at the time, but it doesn't matter all that much now. I mean, unless you just specifically want a particular Mac, if you just want sort of a an example of an early '90s Mac to mess around with, and this is as good as any of them, really. See, I'd almost rather have the LC2 because this this Performa, just from an outside perspective, and I can consider myself an outside perspective from the Macintosh line. It just lacks class visually. Yeah. Um, it there's there's nothing neat about it. No. It, yes, it'll probably do a lot of good work in the Mac OS realm. But it's just nothing neat about it. You know, I you put a 386 next to this, and if they both showed the same picture, I'd you know, think they were mm-hmm. both IBM compatibles. I, I will tell you what's unusual to me looking at it is it doesn't have a CD-ROM. And I will tell you, when I bought my 400 at Sears, I really debated because I had to buy it on credit. And it would have totally maxed out the credit card to get the 600. I could have sworn it had a CD-ROM drive. And that was the big decision. It was like, oh, I, shouldn't I just go ahead and... Go for it, you know. They finally get a CD-ROM and a color system, and I didn't. You know, system doesn't have a CD-ROM drive, and, and probably that, a One X one at that too. That right? seems weird because I could have sworn 
have to, I'll have to no, it would have been two X because that was the Quadra, the Quadra series. So I'll give you the museum's perspective on this pretty, you know, quickly. Um, I don't have a single Performa or a single LC. I have one LC3 because it's very easy to take the cover off and stick a drive in. So it's a work machine. Uh-huh. But my museum has always been based on best in class or very seminal models. Okay. And the Performa is a period in Apple's history I'd like to see go away. <laughs> for $200 with shipping, but even $100 for this, yes, it's nice. It, but a lot of people don't really know. You want an early 90s Mac. Okay, that's fine. Most of the weights, the monitor. These are the kind of Macs that people will give you for free day and night. Mm-hmm. Look on Craigslist. Go to garage sales, things like that. Um, it was a dog. You, you're absolutely right. It was a dog when it was new. The LC was a dog when it was new. They didn't perform well then. Um, they're Basically, they, in my view, they have no retail value. Obviously, uh, t- people will pay something for them. Well, but yeah, and of course, that's what value is—is is what somebody's. Well, value is what someone's willing to pay for something. And uh, now, of course, if you owned one, like I owned a Performer Four Hundred, then sometimes just nostalgia comes into play and all that. Yes, that's always true, and that—that's that's true regardless of what it is. Um, and a lot of people own the performers in the LCs because they were more affordable. Yeah. You know, but it was it was well, like or you could use your Sears card. Today, you know, and it, it sucks two years from now because you can't expand it. Basically, it came down to I I could use my Sears card, and that's all right. I had. So I was able to get a Mac, and that was great—a color Mac. One last thing I'll point out about it: this I definitely remember is I think I believe this was only with these very first three performance, which is a little interesting. So this one's running seven point five three. When you bought them at Sears or whatever, they actually shipped with seven point one p. They actually had a slightly different Performa operating system, which had the bundled Claris Works, and I want to say it also had that push button interface. What was that called? At ease or something? What was that called, yeah. Adam? It had that built into it, which I didn't like. Right. But um. Oh, they have a Performa 600 and a 600 CD model. So oh, okay. Both. Yeah. So at Sears, I remember it came down to you know, the three. They just had they didn't have this plain 600. So, right, but you're yeah. right. You'd want to go for the – if you're going to do that, that's the whole point of that case is it has the internal mm-hmm. CD-ROM drive. All right, so I have one last one. We're not doing too bad on time, but we need to move along. So now you want to talk about uh, top of class and so on and so forth, Adam. Well, I give you what I found. I found some outrageous prices on these machines. This one is reasonable. This is a 1990 Apple Macintosh 2FX computer near mint. For four hundred and fifty nine ninety five, buy it now. Um, fifty bucks shipping to me from Beverly Hills if I wanted to. Um, let's see, what does it say? It does it say it works? I think does it say it works? Well, it's powered up. Yeah, it says it only had one owner in its entire lifetime. The listings for the desktop, keyboard, mouse, and power cables. So the only downside here is it does not come with the the monitor. But still, when you're looking at other ones and they're going for a thousand bucks, which is debatable whether they're worth that much, you can you can find another monitor. Um, so a quick story is I actually worked for a small software developer in Jacksonville, Florida, my hometown, when the 2FX came out. This is, again, before I joined the Army. And I'll never remember, I'll never forget, rather, the the president of the company got a 2FX. And um, it ran like System 605 or something. And it was the first time I ever saw a Mac where, you know, you turned it on, it went bong, and literally like, it was up. Boom, it was on the desktop, and it's like, holy crap. And then you open and close windows and do stuff, and it was like, it was so insanely fast. I mean, it was like the fastest, you know, I was, 
It's all perspective, that, right? That was the tagline for it. It was called the Insanely Fast Mac. It was the fastest computer I've ever seen in my life at the time, you know, because it just how fast it could do everything. It was crazy. So, um, but anyway, this is a nice example of one. It works. And uh, so, I don't know, Adam, can you say a little bit more about the two effects? It was an O3O processor, the fastest O3O they ever made, I think. But there was other things about it that made it fast. It had a special memory. It was right. It was a 40 megahertz uh, 68030. It had like double speed RAM. It had, you know, you had to use special RAM for it. Probably Save very wide bus, right? Um, it's probably, a, well, they were all 32, but it was it was full 32. It had the math co uh, Let's see, no, it was no 30. So it came with the math coprocessor chip. Yeah, I mean, under System 6, it flew. You know, by the yeah. time you got System 7, it slowed down. But you could also put in a lot more RAM, you know, and it had six slots. Um, Two floppy drives plus the hard drive internal. I mean, we had one. I was actually working for Bose at the time, and we got one in our video edit suite with a couple other cards. And and yeah, it was definitely the kick-ass machine of its day. Um, a dead end path. Ultimately, it was the one little branch off the Mac Two line into this whole you know souped up O30 with faster memory, and it was very very expensive. And then within six months, they came out with the Quadras, which is the 68 or 40 line. And sort of abandoned the direction they were going in with the two effects. Yeah, and but it was fast. True. It stayed fast for a while. I mean, it was a you know sort of like a two CI, which wasn't as fast. But you, I mean, if you own this and you paid a lot of money for it, it was a good machine probably for your company or for you for at least four or five years. Oh yeah, and in the early days, so this was the O thirty chip, and then they went to the O forty chip, and then they switched to Power PCs. And for the early Power PCs, especially the six hundred one you know class equipment. Um, the fast, you know, fast O30s like the two FX and the Quadra machines were faster. You know, mm-hmm. it took a it took a while for the new chip architecture to really, you know, show an improvement. And so the two FX, you know, if you bought a two FX and then two years later they went to PowerPC, you could still use it for another two years and it would be serviceable. And since you just dropped six thousand dollars on it, you damn well wanted to use it for another, <laughs> another few years. I, I think the two FX, like a full system like this one we're looking at, that was really. I, it was like eight, nine thousand, wasn't it? Sort of fully decked out. It was, I, the, the phrase "around ten grand" comes to mind. Yeah, may have they were really the monitor. One of the video cards, I think, was a grand just for the twenty-four bit video card. Yeah, they were crazy. Twenty-four GC. Um, I'm stunned. I'm looking at completed listings now on pricing. Yeah, that crazy. they're actually selling for close to a thousand dollars. And there's um, a few other ones that are live, and they're like a buy it now a thousand dollars and stuff. And then I found that's, this one. That's a, I don't know. I guess I'm a different market. Um, again, these machines, if you're patient and you just look around enough on eBay or Craigslist, you can get them for a hundred bucks, 150 bucks. Mm-hmm. But if you want one cleaned up and really working and all that, you're gonna you know pay some money. This this is a you know the the two effects is an important model. Um, it's to me a thousand dollars is is overpriced by at least a factor or two. But, you know, it, it, well, it, it's not a performance 600. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's 26 years old. It works. And so, obviously, just we, we have to uh, all assume that there are less and less of these that work, at, you know, right. every day. So, um, and, you know, and the odds are building on this one stopping to work <laughs> anytime now. Well, with so, any of this old stuff, and I don't know if you guys have mentioned this with the other computers too, but certainly with the Mac and in my museum, if you want to keep one working, you have to have several of them. 
because mm-hmm. you need parts. You know, you need to be able to do A/B testing. You also need to – if you can't fix it yourself, you need to find people who know how to do repairs. And also power it up every once in a yeah. while so the capacitors don't go dry. You want to yes. wanna baby them. Like, uh, you want to keep it in the garage. You want to start its engine every so often. <laughs> yep, say nice things to it. You know? <laughs> That's right. Like that 64 uh, Stingray, right? Yeah. I literally – I mean obviously it, in seriousness, you want to keep them inside your house. Because, you know, I've kept a lot out in the garage over the years. And, and, you know, I haven't lived in extreme weather places. But, you know, weather just can tear things up. But ever since Steve Jobs died, you know, Mac prices have shot up. Old Mac prices on eBay. They've come down now. It was a real spike, you know, the first year or two after he died. But just for the, you know, I don't don't know if your audience is the general public. But, you know, as someone who's followed the Mac market for a long time, you can often get things for a lot less than people ask on eBay. There's a lot of people trying to really capitalize on the stuff on eBay. And if you're patient, you can pay a fraction of what a lot of this stuff goes. Our audience, for some odd reason, they're they're mostly like middle-aged women that are like hairdressers and they do nails. and, and, And it's just really weird. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> anyway well they can use that you know 2fx to you know maybe yeah. host point, an yeah. they love the 2fx file they love it <laughs> we didn't talk about any power pc but that's okay because that's that's too new so that's all right. well you just moved 95 you just moved and up. into 32-bit computing on your last show so oh you're right yeah you keep it in the in the 80s decade we did all stick to the proper thing yeah so there you go i think uh i think that was good that was good coverage and um, any closing thoughts on the early days of the Macintosh? So just by the way, Adam, you know, we talked about the Apple Lisa last time. Obviously talking about the Macintosh. Next show, um, we're going to be doing the Atari ST. I looked it up, Jeff, and the Atari ST officially shipped, you know, or came out a month ahead of the Amiga. So we got to do the Atari ST that first. That's about right, yeah. So we're doing the Atari ST series and then the Amiga next. And are you familiar with the Atari ST series at all? No, but I know somebody who is. Are, are you, Adam? Uh, yes, and it had that membrane keypad you were talking about. In uh... No, these didn't. These are much later Oh, on. the STs are newer. I'm thinking of 400, 800. Yeah, so they had, a, they had a funny nickname. So this is after um, Jack Trammell had left Commodore and went to uh, Atari. And so the Atari ST series were directly competing more with the Macintosh and then the Amiga. But its nickname was the Jackintosh. <laughs> I hadn't heard that for Jack Trammell. Well, a, a closing thought I'll say, just touching on what I said earlier. Um, the you know, Apple's a controversial company. You know, you're with them or you're against them, sort of thing. And the Mac is, you know, the Mac has largely succeeded in in historical place because others are no longer around. Mm-hmm. You know, and Apple keeps marketing it. But as Considering where it started and that the brand is still around, it's very interesting to watch the history of computing. You know, you could watch it as a whole, which we all do, but also to see how that evolves, you know, through one product line of one company. It's like looking at, you know, GM's cars over, you know, decades and decades and things like that. So it's sort of really interesting. It's it's stunning, frankly, that Apple is in the position they are, you know, given where that company came from and how long it's been. But to see, you know, that Lisa and that 128K Mac is now effectively that iPhone, you know, that you have in your hand and see the lineage throughout one company. You know, that that's a lot of it. That's interesting to me. And then it's going to, you know, interesting as we, we keep looking at more of these again, the Atari ST series, the Amiga, how uh, this, this was a big change in the whole 
ecosystem of computing in the you know the mid '80s. The mid to late '80s was a big change, and um, to ultimately, uh, you know what? Now that we're I'm thinking about this, Jeff, maybe we'll need to cover. Maybe we need to end this covering Windows. Kinda, huh? I don't know. Dots well, machines covering because yeah. that's where it all ended up in the early '90s. Uh, you know. With Windows three three point one is then that's when you know DOS had already taken over by then, but then Windows just really cemented it. But even the early Windows was still considered sixteen bit. Yeah, but um, but you know, out of all the GUI systems, I mean, and then thirty two bit. So little this, little that, whatever. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it's it's an era. It's an era, and it wasn't like at that time, right? The Atari and all these other systems, you know, they were all equals. It wasn't clear Commodore, you know. Mm-hmm. As I said to one person, one reason that's amazing about Apple is they didn't put themselves out of business. Yeah, they, they tried very hard. They came right. very close many times, but you know, Commodore essentially f- themselves over, and Atari so like like it was always the business <laughs> yeah. practices that killed the company, uh. you know, not the products. I got to write down this time here. <laughs> yeah, we could talk uh, about geos too. Yeah. All right, let's wrap it up. Hey, Adam, it was great having you on. Thanks for being a part of the show. My pleasure. And again, you can catch him at vintagemacmuseum.com. And uh, so next show is in two weeks. It'll be eBay show seven and releasing on January 22nd. We're going to be continuing our coverage of GUI 30-bit 32-bit computers with the Atari ST series. You can find all of our show notes at historyofpersonalcomputing.com. You can send us feedback at feedback at historyofpersonalcomputing.com because we really would love to receive your email or audio comment. And won't you tell someone about us, please? Write a review on iTunes. Help us spread the word on Facebook, Google+, Twitter. We're starting to get you know more and more likes on Facebook, I'm seeing. So that's great. So we do have more than two listeners. Keep doing that. Yeah. Or they're just really busy. They're, 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 yeah, they're <laughs> loading. They stay really busy. Um, what were the two listeners' names again? We, need, we should thank them in person every time, by name. <laughs> we're going to have to pay every listener now. And uh, incentive. Talk, talk about us in, in any of your specialty discussion groups, like uh, VintageComputer.com. Oh, talk about us at your computing. company meetings. You know, yeah. get the word out there. We don't care. <laughs> Let's go there again. Talk to your wife, your, your hairdresser. Your, you know, well, they can tell you more about the show. Anyway, that's it for today. Remember, let the buyer beware or caveat emptor, and take care of your old computers. Bye. Bye-bye. Just check my feedback, A++.